0: This is C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. This week, a look at the American South in the 1920s. Professor Alan Kraut talks about the region's economic progress 50 years after the Civil War. Welcome to our special guest, C-SPAN, this afternoon. Uh, I'm Alan Kraut from the Department of History at American University, and this is a class uh, in the South since Reconstruction. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about the South during the 1920s, Uh, But first I want to sort of remind us of of what we've been talking about. You know, there was a very, very special generation of politicians that began uh, to affect Southern life and Southern politics in the early part of the 20th century. These progressive politicians were primarily concerned with the needs of the middle class, with scientific management, Uh, with harnessing competition within the marketplace uh, and with taking care of society's producers, the workers, the farmers, the people, some of the same people that the populists had been concerned with in the 1890s. It gave rise to a a new generation of southern politicians, people with colorful names like Hoke Smith and Ben Tillman, Pitchfork Ben Tillman, uh, Big Jim Hogg from Texas, James Vardaman and Theodore Bilbo from Mississippi and, of course, from Louisiana, Huey Long. These politicians were at one and the same time uh, corrupt. Uh, Many of them were racists. They were colorful. They were dramatic speakers, dynamic speakers. And yet at the same time, whatever negative things they were, They were also some of the most reformist-minded, innovating politicians that the South had ever seen. It was these politicians who eventually ousted child labor or reduced the amount of child labor in the South. Three-quarters of the textile mills of North Carolina employed children, uh, but reformers like these got laws passed and so by 1912 every southern state had legislation controlling the age of those who worked in factories and mills. Uh, The federal government would finally legislate child labor in 1916, but even before 1916 these southern progressives were ahead of the curve, if you will, in trying to limit child labor in southern factories and mills. They built roads, They ended the convict lease system. They did all of the things that Southerners needed in their lives to make improvements. And many of them, though they took a drink themselves, supported prohibition legislation uh, because they believed that prohibition would make for a sober, industrious workforce and would bring capital into the South. And so these Southern progressives really turned a page in Southern politics. And in 1912, with their support, the South would enter the national political stage for the first time, really, since before the Civil War. And the person who would take that stage was Woodrow Wilson. Uh, Here at American University, we're sitting only a few blocks from where Woodrow Wilson is buried in the walls of the Washington Cathedral, Uh, but I'm sure Mr. Wilson won't mind if we chat about him this afternoon uh, just a little bit. It was Wilson who became president uh, with the support of these Southern politicians. He was a Southerner himself. He was born in Staunton, Virginia. He did his undergraduate work at Princeton University and his law school at the University of Virginia. In 1902, he was the president of Princeton University. Uh, And, in fact, he is the first and only Ph.D. to ever sit in the White House. Um, Wilson was faced with a number of challenges uh, in his years in the White House. Very soon after Wilson entered the White House, of course, the United States was caught in the crossfire between England and Germany, which would ultimately start the First World War. The impact of the First World War was profound on the South. Remember how dependent the South was on cotton and the cotton trade. Now, both sides were interfering with the Southern trade. And in order to bolster up uh, the South during this crisis period, Wilson ordered that $30 million be deposited in Southern banks to provide loans to Southern farmers during the very, very difficult period. Moreover, in the South, they launched a a buy-a-bale movement. Literally, you could buy a bale of cotton. Even Gimbel's, a famous department store in New York City, uh, had bales of cotton piled up so that customers could help the South by going out when they went shopping at Gimbel's and buying a bale of cotton. Uh, Suddenly, the country was surrounding the South and supporting the South because the South was suffering. During the beginning of the fashion season uh, in 1914-1915, Southern women of good family and society promised that their ball gowns would be made of cotton in support of the South. And so the South Now, we're sort of at the center of American concerns, even as Mr. Wilson was looking at England and looking at Germany and wondering, perhaps, when the United States would be getting into the war, something he did not look forward to. While this was going on, Wilson was also building up, of course, America's arsenal, and we were beginning to train troops. Uh, That training, of course, would escalate after our actual entry into the war. What Wilson did, good Southerner that he was, was to establish a number of Army training camps in the South. There was also the chemical factories at Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and the naval station at Biloxi, Mississippi. Uh, Wilson made sure that if there was going to be money made as a result of World War I, at least some of that money would accrue to the South and would bolster the Southern economy. And so uh, he begins to work away at seeing that there are investments and jobs and production in the South. Moreover, he mandates that there are going to be Northerners and Southerners fighting together side by side and training together in the South. This was the first time since the Civil War that a conscious effort had been made to make sure that those from different sections would be able to get to know one another and fight together.
1: Typically, the first time the South and North people ever, ever, ever fought alongside each other was during the Spanish and American War.
0: Yes, but that was a small-scale war. We didn't have the kinds of training camps newly established in the South the way we did for World War I.
1: Ari? It was my understanding
0: that uh, the, the,
1: the regimental system uh, that was in common use in Europe w- was abandoned uh, by the United States because when uh, a regiment is composed entirely of people from a certain locale, if that regiment is, anna- is uh, annihilated, then uh, all the young men of a certain age, uh, of course, vanish from, a certain, from that area,
0: and there's a, a vacuum uh, left in their wake. Right, and there was an effort to make sure that no one part of the country, no one state, no one locality, uh, had that kind of loss, which happened often in the Civil War. And so uh, Wilson was beginning to invest in the South, make changes in the South, And the South responded. The jobs that Wilson was creating were very much in demand by Southerners. Uh, Young men from Appalachia and young women, too, came down out of the mountains to work in these jobs, to work in these plants, to make money, more money than their families had ever seen before in some cases. It had a tremendous impact on towns as well. After all, when you have young uh, adults working in towns, they've got to find a place to live. Well, that means hotels and rooming houses. Uh, They have to have a place to eat. Well, luncheonettes and small restaurants. They have to buy things. The stores were doing better than ever. In other words, the early years of World War I uh, were in many ways a great boom to the South. Now, not all Southerners uh, experienced that boom in the South. African Americans did not benefit from Woodrow Wilson's presidency. No one brought segregation more firmly to Washington, D.C., and to other parts of the country than Woodrow Wilson. He was very, very much uh, the racial segregationist. He segregated the United States Post Office uh, and certainly did not object to the segregation of the armed services. then that why one of the
1: largest migrations is during World War I, one of the large African-American migrations to the northern cities? I'm yes, sure. you
0: anticipate my point, exactly.
1: Okay. Actually, uh, I'm wondering also <laughs> how many actually in total is it at this point? Are there numbers? Like, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. About uh, 320,000 went north uh, during this period, during the war itself, uh, which is about a little under 5%. Uh, of the population, of the African-American population of the South. Uh, A decade later, that would continue, would continue into the 20s, and 615,000 went during the decade of the 1920s. Uh, Why were they leaving? Well, we've talked a little bit before about the migration that began in the 1890s, the so-called Great Migration of young African-Americans wanting to escape sharecropping and tenant farming and start a new life. Well, now with the war on, there were job opportunities in the North too. And since job opportunities for African Americans in the South were very, very uh, circumscribed to say the least, uh, there, there were opportunities in the North. And when the United States finally did enter the war, that meant that young men were leaving to go fight for their country. Well, They left jobs. Some of those jobs might go to young African Americans who are now beginning to move out in ever greater numbers. Southerners had mixed feelings about this. At first, white Southerners said, let them go. If they want to go out of the South, that's fine. Let them leave. Uh, But it was very, very clear that not all Southerners felt that way about it. And as many Southern businesses began to see their labor supply drying up, newspaper editors began to publish articles in their newspapers and say, Southerners are fools. They're allowing their workforce to leave the South and go to the North. Why don't they do something? Why isn't something done? And in fact, there were efforts, as there were in the earlier period, sometimes very brutal and nasty efforts uh, to keep African-Americans from leaving. Uh, Going down to a train station, for example, uh, as the police often would in asking African-Americans in the train station, uh, do you have a ticket? Uh, And if they said, yes, we have a ticket, here's the ticket for the train, taking the ticket and ripping it up and saying, now you don't. Uh, These kinds of things happened, and they happened often enough so that we can talk about a pattern. Moreover, those who managed to get into the armed services, and remember the armed services has always been, in the era before the voluntary army, a way of uh, taking young men, and it was in those days only young men, uh, into an occupation where they could earn a living, uh, and possibly even something useful for after they got out of the army. Well, the army was segregated. And African Americans who went into the army found themselves either in segregated units or in menial occupations as a cook, cleaning latrines, doing laundry. Uh, and that too, of course, was very, very Uh, unsettling and demeaning and just plain rotten. Did you have a question? Okay. And so um, that is the structure of what the war did for the South. In fact, it was a very important injector of economic energy into the South and shuffled uh, society in a particular kind of way. As a result of the income made during the war and in wartime occupations, Uh, Those who had loans were able to pay them off. Those who didn't own homes were sometimes able to buy a home with what the money they saved from the steady jobs that they had. In short, for many who stayed, and especially for whites, the standard of living went up as a result of World War I. But what about after the war? That was a a question very much on the minds of many, uh, including the great African-American leader, W.E.B. Du Bois, who went to Paris uh, at the end of the war and spoke to African-American soldiers. And he said, as a result of your military service, you have changed, but America has not. And the result will be that if you come back and seek to take liberties in the United States, especially in the the South, uh, that you have been able to take here in Paris and in other parts of Europe, you will find yourself basically at the end of a rope. That warning was very important and very prescient. Because, in fact, at the end of the war, there were a rash of race riots in the United States. In the summer and autumn of 1919, the so-called Red Summer, because the blood flowed so freely, there were riots. In July, whites invaded the black area of Longview, Texas, looking for a schoolteacher who had accused a white woman of seeking a sexual relationship with an African-American with him. The mob burned shops and homes, and swept for blocks around before order was finally restored. Right here in Washington, D.C., there were four days of riots during that summer until troops were finally brought in to restore peace. And so the aftermath of the war in the South revealed that while many changes had taken place in the South, one change that had not taken place was the feeling between the races, and especially the virulent racism that had existed in the South since the end of the Civil War. And so, as the decade ended, a lot had changed, but a lot had remained the same. Are there any questions before I move into the 20s? You know, many of us have um, some very very colorful images in our minds when somebody says the 1920s. When somebody says the 1920s, what do you think of? Laura. The Great Gatsby. The Great Gatsby. Okay. Man's Red Fitzgerald. Uh, anything else? The
1: anti-prohibition uh, movements and all the gangsters that went.
0: Were- Ah, don't create any a lot of speakeasies. Okay, gangsters, speakeasies. That's very colorful. Uh, prosperity and isolationism. Mm. Ah, prosperity and isolationism. Certainly um, both are very important to the 20s, and uh, many were prosperous, at least in the early part of the 1920s. Others?
1: Uh, the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan.
0: Yes, something I'll be talking about in a few minutes, the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan. Sorry. The rise of consumerism. The rise of consumerism. I'm profoundly disappointed. No one has said the towering home runs of the great Babe Ruth. (laughs) But all right. All right, you guys. Um, The first president of the 1920s was, of course, Warren Harding, a dour Midwesterner uh, who in private, uh, was a gambler, a womanizer, uh, a man of uh, maybe questionable private morals, but publicly a pretty important president uh, because he promised the United States normalcy. Now, if you go to the dictionary, you will not find that word or else you will find a description that says a word used by Warren Harding to describe (laughs) what he hoped for the United States. Harding wanted the country to basically retreat from its involvement in the world. We had had the big meeting at Versailles where Woodrow Wilson hoped to bring peace in our time for an extended period, the division of the world, the shattering of empires, uh, I don't know how many of you know this, but World War I actually ended, I believe it was on Sunday, uh, yesterday. Uh, and the reason I say that is because it was the last payment made by Germany of its World War I reparations. And so some of the media picked up on this and were describing the day as the last day of World War I. Well, uh, in the South... There was a brief post-war economic slump, but after that, there was a period of tremendous, tremendous accelerated expansion uh, and a diversification of industry. For the first time, a southerner, John Edgerton, a textile manufacturer from Lebanon, Tennessee, became the head of the National Association of Manufacturers a major theme in Southern life was beginning to emerge. And it echoed a theme more generally in American society. And that theme was expansion, economic growth, investment. It was a time while certainly not everyone benefited economically. There were many, many, many poor in the United States, But it seemed a time to many businessmen to invest in America and in the South to invest in the South. Southerners were building, generating power. By 1925, there were 10 hydroelectric stations that had a capacity of 483,000 horsepower and supplied energy for 300 cotton mills as well as towns... Uh, and cities in the Piedmont area uh, of the Carolinas. That's just an example of what Southerners wanted to do. They wanted to bring power to the South available to Southern industries. They wanted those industries to grow. They wanted those industries to employ. We've spoken before about mills and the growth of mills and the importance of mills. Once again... Southerners began to advocate from every pillar and pulpit the building of mills. In Gaston, North Carolina, uh, they developed the motto organize a mill a week. Well, maybe not a mill a week, but certainly Southerners were beginning to realize that mills had a tremendous advantage. For one, it pulled Southerners who were impoverished on the land as tenant farmers and sharecroppers into the mill organization. And remember what we've said about this is that the mills were very, very paternalistic. They practiced a kind of industrial paternalism to which many Southerners responded very positively. The wages were kept down so that Southern mills could compete Uh, with mills elsewhere in other countries and in the north. But in exchange for keeping the wages down, the mill owners often provided goods and services to workers that they might not otherwise have access to. Access to a physician. Access uh, to holiday celebrations. Picnics on the 4th of July. Access Uh, to athletic equipment and programs for the workers and for their children as well. And so, all of these things were about business and about a kind of boosterism that became very, very common in the South. Suddenly, Southerners began to realize that an awful lot could be gained through advertising and how important advertising could be to the promotion of their mills and other kinds of businesses. They began to describe advertising as almost a god, uh, and Atlanta, the center of advertising in the South, as a kind of mecca, a hub, almost in, in religious terms, because they expected good things to result from this marriage of business and advertising. For Southerners who worked in the mill, uh, there were prosperous times, but of course not as prosperous as in other parts of the country. Uh, The labor costs were way down. In Mississippi, a mill worker uh, in the period of the early 1920s could earn about 40 cents an hour. In Virginia, 35 cents an hour. In Alabama, 21 cents an hour, Um, but this compared very unfavorably with uh, the 50 cents or 55 cents an hour that you could earn in a Massachusetts mill. In other words, Southerners were accepting the lower wage because in fact many of them simply didn't know what the wages were in other parts of the country and unionization had not entered the South yet And indeed, in many parts of the South, the textile mills would not be organized until well after the Second World War. And so Southerners enjoyed the benefits of this kind of industrial paternalism. But at the same time, there were also Southerners who realized how much they were being taken advantage of. And they were. Kelly. How much of that was just?
1: Different costs of living standards. I mean, today it's much more expensive to live in New York City than it is to live in Charlotte or Greensboro. So, how? how
0: yes, that's that true. But, you know, in this period, uh, the wages were so low that in many instances, and, and we'll certainly try to get to this later on today, uh, it prevented families from actually affording a healthy diet. Uh, the Southern poverty diet of uh, corn pone, cornmeal... Uh, coffee, fatback, syrup, develops in the South among mill workers because so often their wages won't stretch far enough to allow them to buy a healthy diet. In the days of sharecropping and tenant farming, uh, in addition to farming cotton, you often had a little garden, you might have a milk cow, Uh, you supplemented your diet in a variety of other ways. Now, once Southerners went into the mills and into the factories, there was no time and no room for a milk cow. There was no room for a garden or time to tend it. They worked long hours. And so the overall uh, style of life for mill workers, while in certain ways it seemed much better, often degenerated and resulted in illnesses and shorter lifespans for mill workers. In addition to that, uh, there was no such thing as workman's compensation. So if somebody were hurt in the mill, badly injured in the mill, their family could be on the rim of starvation, and there was nothing that could be done about it, uh, simply because there weren't these uh, social safety nets underneath them. So, mill life and industrial paternalism of this kind had its compensations, but it also had some real downsides for Southerners. Other questions while we're poised here? No? Okay. So, certainly from the standpoint of the South, this marriage of industry and advertising boosted the South's position within the country economically generally and was good for some southerners. What about African-Americans in the mills? Well when they were hired in the mills at all, again they were always given the menial jobs. They were the ones who took out the trash, they were the ones who cleaned the bathrooms, they were the ones who had the lowest jobs and certainly uh, in order to preserve segregation uh, black men and white women were never permitted in the same space uh, at the same machines most of the time even in the same area of the mill. In addition to textiles, one of the other really big growth areas was tobacco, and we've talked a little bit about tobacco before. James Buchanan Duke made the big difference, and the formation of the American Tobacco Company, the rise of R.J. Reynolds, Uh, after the antitrust decision of 1911 shattered the American Tobacco Company. Um, What Reynolds did was also begin to develop uh, new kinds of mixes to put in the cigarette. He added a touch of Burley and a touch of Turkish tobacco, and he called the result a Camel. And uh, the advertising phrase that was used was, tomorrow there will be more camels in this town than in all of Asia and Africa combined, end quote. Uh, The idea was that the cigarette could be just as profitable and, in fact, was becoming rapidly a Southern contribution to the broader social-cultural picture of the United States. More and more people were smoking cigarettes. Uh, Men in the United States had long smoked cigars and pipes. That was the preferred smoke. The cigarette, these small white things that you rolled or were rolled for you, had to really be sold to American men. But the tobacco producers had a good idea in the 1920s, and that was sell them to women, too. As many of you know, uh, the image of woman in the 1920s, the American woman, uh, was what? Anyone? The flapper. flapper. What did that mean? Uh, Very not shapely dresses
1: that were kind of slinky. And
0: the hat and spit curls and... And? and, and, Oh, and the
1: long cigarette holders. And the long cigarette holder.
0: (laughs) And uh, a kind of, if not loose, at at least lenient sort of behavior. Um, These were young women who claimed to be the first generation of liberated women in America uh, who could go into a tavern and order a drink, if they were in a part of the country where there were taverns and drinks were being served, uh, who would smoke a cigarette, who would stay up all night and go to a club and dance the Charleston, uh, who basically represented a kind of new take on the American woman. From the standpoint of the tobacco companies, why not sell the ladies cigarettes? Well, how could you make the cigarette appealing to women? Anyone? What might sell a cigarette to a woman? Sexy. Make it look sexy. Uh, and how would you do that? Bring it more to the image. OK, certainly in advertising images, you showed attractive women smoking cigarettes. It was part of their being attractive, the attractiveness. Uh, women with cigarette holders, but also associating the cigarette with what women often do to be sexy, they diet. They control their weight. And so uh, the tobacco companies began to play with phrases like have a lucky, reach for a lucky, meaning lucky strike, instead of a sweet. And so by the 1920s, Uh, women were being encouraged on the pages of magazines and so on to have a cigarette which would suppress their appetite and presumably help them to avoid the kind of sweets that added weight.
1: Um, I read that they also started calling cigarettes freedom torches and they um, associated it with the suffragist movement.
0: Right. After all, part of, of that was your personal behavior if you were interested in voting, if you were that liberated that you would wanted to change the political role of women in America, maybe a company could sell you a cigarette. It could be part of a, the image. Daniel.
1: This time that uh, with the temperance movement and with the ladies from Hull House uh, and these progressive women, that it also empowered them to, to be smokers, to actually have the choice. So even with the advertising... When they have been more compelled, I guess, to be part of, I guess, a hierarchy or a part of society that they could really kind of muscle into instead of just being like, we're going to be dictated to because this is what society wants us to do. So it wasn't
0: also a case of rebellion. Yeah, I think the key word there is the word choice. Uh, women should have a choice about what they do. And certainly in the years since, we've heard the word choice with respect to birth control, uh, and abortion reform, and so on. And here in the 1920s, we're beginning to see it play out on a much lower key of whether or not a woman should, could smoke a cigarette in public and still be considered decent. Right? And that's, that's what's at stake here, the issue of decency, of moral decency, uh, and this item. And this became the item that embodied choice and liberation. So there was tobacco. One other product I want to mention that comes from the South and into uh, sort of the general American marketplace, and that is Coca-Cola. First concocted in 1886 by an Atlantic druggist, made a fortune for this man, Asa Griggs Chandler, before he sold the controlling interest to a man named Ernest Woodruff who begins to get broad national distribution. And Coca-Cola, this soft drink, becomes popular throughout the country. It even affects American mores. Southern office managers had long given their employees a break at 10 o'clock and a break at 3 p.m. Two breaks per day. Coca-Cola became integrated into those breaks. It became, in effect, a Coke break. Um, Or Coca-Cola, picking up on this, drafted the advertising phrase, the pause that refreshes. Now you drink a Coca-Cola and you go back to work refreshed. Uh, In the wintertime in the North, of course, there were many workers who didn't want Coca-Cola, so it becomes translated as the coffee break the coffee break at 10, and the coffee break at 3. But my point is this. The South, rather than being out of it economically with respect to the rest of the country, a place aside and separate, is now beginning to produce items that are prevalent in the national marketplace, that are in demand. And the economy is spreading. Yes, the tobacco companies begin in the South. James Buchanan Duke owns plenty of property in the South. But eventually, the corporate offices of the American Tobacco Company will be in New York. Um, That's important, because you begin to see the connection between Northerners and Southerners over these items that have transcended sectional, Uh, boundaries, and become very much part of the national cultural scene. Cigarettes, Coca-Cola, textiles, um, all of these things are now the South's contribution uh, to the United States more generally. Agriculture, of course, lags behind, and agriculture is responsible still in the 1920s for employing More Southerners than any other economic endeavor. 67% of Southerners are earning their livings in agriculture. And they are, as they had been even before the Civil War, buying things in protected markets and selling in unprotected markets. And Southerners, as they had before, demand protection. They want tariffs which will protect what it is that they produce. Um, And they get it. The emergency tariff of 1921 uh, passed during the Harding administration includes peanuts, wheat, corn, wool, and long-staple cotton. Very important. The Fordney-McCumber tariff of 1922 lists more than 200 agricultural products, uh, some say it is the first tariff in American history to really give the South a fair deal. Now why is it possible to get these tariffs in the 1920s when you couldn't get them before? Anyone? What does the South have now that it didn't have earlier? Is it a higher income now? No, I was thinking politically. in Congress? Um, not a majority, but seniority. Seniority. Uh, seniority within the committee system. Remember those Southern Democrats who keep getting elected and elected and elected? Well, they gain seniority in the committee system. They begin to become some of the most important wheelers and dealers within Congress. Um, and even though a later tariff, the McNary Hogan Bill of 1928, isn't passed, Uh, it nevertheless indicates that the South is beginning to push back economically within the political process. And that hadn't happened since before the Civil War. So um, the 1920s is a very important time for Southern agriculture. At times it is also a tragic time for Southern agriculture. The downturn in cotton prices... In the early 1920s, the infestation of the boll weevil, uh, also in the 1920s, makes time and life very, very tough for many, many southern farmers. And along with those tough times, uh, there is a decline in the quality of life and in the diet of many southerners. Uh, There are illnesses uh, such as pellagra that begin to bedevil southerners in a way that... um, was increasing rather than decreasing and so the 1920s while it's prosperous for those who are entering the new diversified economy of the South is hardly a wonderful time for everyone not everyone is having a good time in the 1920s and certainly if you were a cotton farmer in the South it was a difficult time how do Southerners respond to these changes. Clearly, some very dramatic changes in a relatively short space of time. One could well argue that the South was being thrust sort of helter-skelter into modernity. That that section of the country that had remained most rural, most agricultural, most removed from uh, the rest of the country that was urbanizing and industrializing and adding to its population through immigration that was not the South. But now the South was beginning to experience urbanization, industrialization, and even in some places at some times uh, immigration of the foreign-born into their midst. When any people in a state, in a region, are subjected to that kind of change, in a relatively short period of time, there are those who will embrace the change and there are those who will reject the change, who will see the the change as intrusive and damaging and maybe even immoral. And that is, of course, the story of the rise of the second Ku Klux Klan. As you know from what we've talked about, The first Klan was very active in the 1860s and 70s and was very much a response to the change in the status of African Americans following the Civil War, the 13th Amendment ending slavery, the 14th Amendment uh, granting citizenship, the 15th Amendment ensuring voting rights, and so on. And the Klan was a white response to that. It consisted of terror, Hangings, whippings, beatings, killings, lynchings. It was a very, very brutal response. And we've seen the pictures of the lynchings and seen the response of the public who treated those lynchings in many cases, the white public did, as an, in an almost festive kind of way, making them the occasion for picnics uh, and family outings to watch a human being Uh, being killed at the end of a rope. Postcards that were published showing lynching victims hanging from a tree. The revival of the Ku Klux Klan in 1915 coincided in many ways with the changes that we have been talking about with demographic changes in the population. And certainly, the immediate appearance of the Klan coincided with the opening of Birth of a Nation in 1915. In a sense, the movie premiere became the opportunity for those who wanted to revive the Klan as a response to what was going on in the country. And so on Stone Mountain near Atlanta on a night in 1915, there were glowing, fiery crosses and the rise once again of the so-called Invisible Empire. The person presiding over this resurrection was a Colonel William Joseph Simmons an Atlanta Methodist, uh, I'm sorry, an Alabama Methodist minister, a promoter of fraternal societies, a very sweet and mellifluous uh, voice speaker. He had tons and tons of stories for all who would listen of the Confederates' great lost cause and the great battles and the noble deeds of the Civil War, (coughs) although it's true that when he was pressed he admitted that Uh, The term colonel was really largely one given to him after the war as a sign of respect. Uh, He had not been a colonel in the Confederacy. The origins of the idea for a new clan are not totally clear. But Simmons claimed that he was the one who originated it, that since childhood he had been seen in his mind's eye apparitions of clansmen riding along the walls of his room, and that he had been having those visions since boyhood. Um, The movie was simply an opportunity that came along. Exactly what the task of the new Klan would be was at first unclear. It was dedicated to sectionalism, certainly, to white supremacy, definitely, Uh, The Klan endorsed 100% Americanism, and it limited its membership to white members of a Protestant church. So no Catholics, no Jews, uh, no one who in any way could be regarded as an outsider. For nearly five years, that is from about 1915 to 1920, Simmons tried to keep the Klan alive. Uh, it languished, really. By the summer of 1920, he had only about 2,000 people signed up for the new Ku Klux Klan. But then he did something smart. He took on some partners. He formed an alliance with Edward Young Clark and the Mrs. Elizabeth Tyler, two people who were skilled publicity agents who had er- uh, really cut their professional teeth in the Red Cross wartime drives of World War I. These folks knew about campaigns, they knew about publicity, they knew how you get people to contribute to a cause and to join a cause, and this was who Simmons aligned himself with. They immediately established uh, a dues structure, something called the CLEC token, uh, which was a kind of initiation fee. Notice everything connected to them has a K on it. Uh, Ku Klux Klan, uh, which comes from a Greek word for circle, kouklos. Um, and the idea was that they would be as connected as a circle, as tight as a circle. Uh, the collect token, in this case, the init- initiation fee, was $10, $8 of which, of which accrued back uh, to Simmons, uh, Clark, and uh, Tyler. For this, you got to come to meetings. You got a white sheet and, uh, you know, a hood, um, and they scheduled events like nighttime marches uh, under the light of a burning cross or burning candles and so on. By July 1921, Clark now had some managers in the field, 214 people he called Klegels, K-L-E-A-G-L-E-S. These were really organization field workers to go out and recruit. And in a year, in a year, they had collected 90,000 memberships and $225,000. The growth was incredible. Why do you think people joined the Ku Klux Klan? I mean, you know, what would make somebody lay down 10 bucks uh, and put on that white sheet? Why would you want to do that? be a consequence of the Red Scare, which was going on as a result of the Russian Revolution. Okay, you might fear foreign radicals, but you know, there were a lot of Americans uh, who feared uh, foreign radicals, immigrants, and uh, coming to the United States, but they didn't join the Klan. What might the Klan offer somebody that would make them do that? Well, it would offer support and sort of like the fraternal aspect, and also with the fee that was demanded it seems more special and less um, just something everyone can be a part of. Yes. More yes. I'm not equating the two, but if you think about why people join sororities and fraternities, it is for a sense of specialness, uh, a sense of exclusivity, a sense that I can be part of this, I can participate in these events, and others cannot. I've been chosen I've been selected. Um, America has a long history of secret societies. Uh, Whether we're talking about the Masons uh, or we're talking about uh, the young Phi Beta Kappa. Phi Beta Kappa even has a secret handshake. It goes like this. Uh, But, you know, (laughs) some people got the joke. Anyway, uh, the idea is Americans have always liked in our open and democratic society that feeling that comes with being part of an elite group, of a special group. We don't have an aristocracy, we don't have a monarchy, but we do have from time to time these organizations that pop up that people flock to to get a sense of specialness and of inclusion.
1: just a sense of belonging to
0: something
1: that somebody else can't belong to. Right. I'm just curious, how much of sort of a snowball effect was there as, well, like sort of once X number of people in a community joined, it's expected that, you know, upstanding members of the society, of course you're part of, you're part of the clan and go, yeah. to, go to events like that.
0: Absolutely. Uh, peer pressure often happens. People, you know, their friends join the Klan. Someone says, you know, come on down. Come down to the meetings. You know, we we talk and we have some refreshments and we go on a march and it's exciting and it's fun. Now picture your life uh, not as a university student but picture your life in a menial job. Picture your life as a gas station attendant or somebody who takes orders from others at the low end in a a mill or a factory. What gives you prestige? What will give you that rush of special feeling in your life? Well, at the end of the day, after you've been browbeaten a little bit by your boss and ordered around, you go to a meeting. You put on a hood. You scare the hell out of other people. People fear you and make way for you. Because after all, after all, you're a member of the Klan. Um, And the Klan now has expanded targets. It's not just African Americans as it was in the post-Civil War period, but it's all of these newcomers. It's Catholics. It's Jews. It's uh, people who are in any way outsiders of the community. And sometimes the Klan actually adopts progressive attitudes and regressive attitudes at the very same time. I love to go to backdate bookstores and uh, find little gems and one day I was roaming around a bookstore in upstate New York and much to my surprise I found a book called Clansmen Guardians of Liberty uh, written by Bishop Alma White. Uh, Bishop White was one of the founders of the Pillar of Fire uh, Church, uh, a church of her own creation. And she became very close. She lived in New Jersey in part and became very close to the Klan in the state of New Jersey. And she writes the following. Again, the title of this is Klansmen, Guardians of Liberty. It was published in 1926 in New Jersey. She writes, the fight is on. The awakening has come through the knights of the Ku Klux Klan, who are even now shaking the foundation of iniquity and chasing the enemy from their refuge of lies into the open. Women also are taking a hand in this battle. Too long, through Roman Catholic teachings and practices, they have been kept in a helpless and subordinate condition. The old Roman law, which made women the chattels or the slaves of men, is now in effect in this country behind the walls of papal prisons. The Roman hierarchy has succeeded for ages in keeping women in ignorance, superstition, and degradation. Many of the old Roman laws discriminating against women are still on the statute books in this country. But the franchise, or the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, has placed women on a partial basis of equality and will be the means of eventually bringing them into their own corrupt politicians have too long controlled the ballot box. Women with the ballot will help to vote down the walls of the convents and liberate the victims of their sex held there in galling bondage. Our patriots are determined to hold the fortress of liberty. The hordes from the old world who have little or no love for the stars and stripes will be thwarted in their design to unite church and state, and make America Catholic. Those who have sworn allegiance to the Italian Pope and to the flags of other countries while trying to exploit this nation have much to say about racial prejudices. God made the races and intended that they should occupy their own particular places on the map of the world. And while our 100% Americans foster hatred toward none, they will demand their rights and will not be intimidated by those who have the effrontery to charge them with racial prejudice for trying to safeguard their homes and civil liberties, end quote. So that's a pretty ferocious uh, anti-Catholic statement by the Klan, with a little slap at foreigners generally, Uh, and again, wrapping herself in the cloak of patriotism, but also, notice, in the cloak of women's rights, and so uh, the Klan uses arguments like this in very, very clever ways to bring people in, um, into the fold. And so there's lots and lots and lots of opportunities for the Klan to uh, take aim, if you will, at these foreigners, at these folks who are creating problems for Southerners and for Americans more generally.
1: Jen. You just asked earlier about uh, the anonymity, and that was the importance of the hood in the earlier clan, mm-hmm. uh, due to biblical principles of not, you know, not. Charitable
0: giving should be anonymous.
1: Correct. Now, is that changing during this time period? Is the and in, I can't even say that word. Is that is being anonymous a part of because they don't want to get caught, or is this still the charitable?
0: They, they argue in their tracks that it is this principle of uh, the highest form of charity being anonymous charity. Uh, but in fact, it has the very valuable side effect of protecting them and protecting their identity, though not always. I'll tell you a story. When I was doing research in the South a number of years ago, um, I met a man in Golston, uh, North Carolina, and uh, he told me about two brothers named Cohen who had owned a kind of uh, an everything store, which sometimes Southerners called the Jew store, uh, because it was often owned by Jewish merchants or peddlers uh, that had become merchants. They sold um, clothing. They did all kinds of, of trade and things that people needed. Of the, these two brothers, Cohen, one was a cobbler. And one day a man came into the store and said, "Uh, would you fashion a heel for me? Uh, Because one leg is shorter than the other so that my boots touch the ground at the same time. And the Cohen brother, who was a cobbler, did that for him. And about a week later, the Klan had a march down the center of town. Uh, The Cohen brothers did not run. They did not flee. They instead came out onto the sidewalk as other people did to watch the great white line come down the middle of the street. And as he was standing there watching the Klansmen pass, the Cohen brother, who was the cobbler, noticed a heel, a boot heel, under one of the robes. My goodness, wasn't that a familiar heel? Uh, And it was clopping along down the street past his store. About a week later, the gentleman came back, Uh, And he asked for an adjustment on the heel to build it up a little more in a certain way. The Cohen brother took the boot from him and said, Well, see you've been doing a little walking on this heel, like down the middle of Main Street. And the man looked at him, and he smiled, and he said, Oh, Mr. Cohen, we mean you all no harm. It's them Yankee Jews from New York we hate. (laughs) You one of us. Uh, And it was an odd statement. Uh, I'm not sure Mr. Cohen really appreciated it. Uh, But nevertheless, it demonstrates something about the Klan. The people who lived in town, the merchants whom they knew, the people who they dealt with day to day, who in fact were Jews or Catholics or African Americans, were individuals who, on some level at least, they accepted daily intercourse with. In the abstract, they loathed them. At Klan rallies, they denounced them. If a social moray or custom was violated, they're perfectly capable of lynching them. And that is the complexity, of course, of the Klan and its publics. They rode by night, they did violence, and most of all, what they were was a response to people who feared being left behind, who feared not being part of this new America that was taking shape. Fear is a powerful, powerful motivator. It will make one do incredible things, often things that are not really very uh, praiseworthy. And certainly the members of the Ku Klux Klan, of the second Ku Klux Klan, who in fact in the 1920s marched down the center of Pennsylvania Avenue uh, right past the capital, uh, were capable of doing horrible things. They themselves, from what we know of them, from the studies that historians and others have done with them, of them, were responding to circumstances that made them fearful. It was a response and a lashing out out of their own anxieties of a uh, uh, for a modernity that seemed to be in many ways passing them by. The churches in the South were by no means aligned with the Ku Klux Klan. There's no evidence that any church of any denomination uh, in the South built a firm alliance with the Klan. But there were ministers and there were churches that made alliances like Alma White did and allowed Klansmen to speak from their pulpits And the Klan became a part, if you will, of community life in the South. An ugly underside and a response to the direction that the nation and the rest of the South was going. That was not the only response. One more to discuss. How many of you have ever heard of the Scopes trial? Oh, good. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Who would like to tell us what that trial was about? Uh, The teaching of evolution in public schools in Tennessee. Yes. John Scopes was a school teacher. Um, A high school teacher. And in 1925, a law had been passed forbidding the teaching of evolution a law by the state of Tennessee. John Scopes was persuaded by some of his friends and some members of the American Civil Liberties Union to test that law. And so Scopes taught evolution. He was arrested. Uh, He was told that he was going to be prosecuted, and he was. Uh, And the World's Christian Fundamental Association brought in no lesser light than William Jennings Bryan to assist the prosecution, to prosecute scopes. Now, we've encountered Bryan before, right? He ran for the Democratic Party presidency in 1896, was defeated. He would serve as Secretary of State under Woodrow Wilson. He was seeking to revive a career that... uh, was on the downswing to be sure. He was 65 years old, and now he was involved in one of the most colorful, exciting trials going on in this country. For the defense, the ACLU brought in who? Anybody know? Yes, Clarence Darrow, one of the most renowned defense attorneys attorneys of his era a man known for a kind of silver tongue and a silver tongue with a sharp edge. Uh, He was a brilliant, brilliant litigator. And so now you had William Jennings Bryan in opposition to Clarence Darrow. And what was at stake was the teaching of evolution. Why was the teaching of evolution such a big deal?
1: to the rise of modernism was dispensationalism in the Christian church. The idea that you should move back to a more fundamentalist base or more uh, foundations of the base. So limit the role of women um, and more to a liberal or a, a literal biblical interpretation. Uh,
0: right. that the
1: world was formed in seven days kind of thing.
0: That's right. To a religious fundamentalism which the state of Tennessee and many in the state of Tennessee wanted to embrace. And so now these two giants, uh, known as some of the most articulate people of their age, were going to argue this. It was covered uh, by the press. There were 100 newspapermen that were sent uh, into Tennessee to cover this trial. Uh, there were 22 Western Union operators uh, to send out word of what was happening as it became obvious. There were motion picture cameras of the era. Uh, WGH I'm sorry WGN of Chicago uh, had a hookup, and there was somebody who was narrating the trial as it was proceeding. It was brutally, brutally hot in July. Uh, And so for part of the trial, they actually moved the entire trial out onto the lawn of the courthouse where the arguments continued. At one point, Brian took the stand as an authority on the Bible. And the exchanges between Darrow and Brian were memorable as Darrow tried to literally pick Brian apart and push him on his knowledge of Bible and what it meant to argue creation in seven days. He made Brian look like a fool. He made Brian's supporters look like bigots and ignoramuses. Scopes was found guilty. Darrow lost the case but won the day. Four days after the end of the trial, Brian keeled over from a heart attack uh, and died. There were some who argued that Darrow had killed Brian by his argument and his forcefulness. Not much evidence that 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 theory flies. But the point of talking about the Scopes trial is not just the colorful conflict of two giants of an age but rather what the trial represented what it meant to have in the south a trial about the teaching of evolution and what was that why was this important what can it tell us about what is going on in at least part of the country in the 1920s Anyone? Go ahead, Ari. So,
1: if I might venture a guess, uh, much of the social opposition to the theory of evolution was in reaction to uh, the uh, spillover... What's the of benefits? The, uh, the drawbacks of modernity, uh, the perception that industrialization had somehow sundered uh, man from his creator, that man was no longer uh, unique, but was simply a quantifiable uh, figure... That uh, exists as you know on a chart for an insurance agency.
0: The truths of the church, the theories of science, which do you choose? Is one true and one only a theory? Are both theories? What are the criteria for deciding which is right and which is wrong? Which side do you want to be on? The pulpit. Or the laboratory? This was the argument that riveted Americans. For the South, it had an additional meaning. The South was, after all, struggling with modernity. That's what the Klan was in part about, a reaction against modernity. What about this trial was this not also really an argument about modernity with Southerners lining up and taking sides? Was that, this not really a discussion about the values that ought to be held most sacred and not violated in any way? By the late 1920s, the South had undergone dramatic change, economically, if not completely socially. It was a very different South than it had been at the end of the Civil War. It was becoming more like the rest of the United States. It was becoming urbanized and industrialized and there were new people coming to the South from other countries and other places more than ever before. But the South was not totally happy with embracing modernity, as other parts of the nation were. The great writer Alan Tate said, with the war of 1914-1918, in the 20s, the South re-entered the world, but gave a backward glance as it stepped over the border, end quote. Yes, the South had stepped over the border into modernity. It was now more like the rest of the United States than it was different from the rest of the United States. But it had not taken the step easily, and in some cases, not even willingly. And there were still some Southerners, those in the Klan, those who wanted to prosecute John Scopes, who wanted to take one long last look backward into another time, into another era, when more familiar values, more sacred values, were shared by their neighbors with themselves. And by the time the stock market crashed in October of 1929, the South was beginning to turn from its past and look to its future, as other parts of the country were, as they began to look into the abyss of economic crisis. Are there any questions? Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Lectures in History, and please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.